You're listening to the Forever on the Fly podcast. What up, baby nerd faces? Welcome to the Forever on the Fly podcast, your bi-weekly dose of aviation inspiration, education, and entertainment. My name is Diane, and guess who's back? Mm, back again. <laughs> Jose's back. That's right. Oh my God. Oh my God. Thank you, folks. Thank you. Oh, Senorita, thank you for that wonderful introduction. Oh, you're you're welcome. Our studio audience is here and they're all giving you a nice warm welcome. Ladies, ladies. <laughs> Dude, some chick just threw a bra at you. What the hell? It's crazy. <laughs> Insane in the membrane. We missed you last week. I missed you as well, but you held down the fort. I tried. You know, I I, I heard the interview and it was effing fantastic. Oh, gracias, gracias. You know, Tom made it pretty easy for me. I gotta, I gotta admit, but yeah, super interesting. I'm glad that you actually listened to it. You know, with your your busy, busy schedule. Hey, man, that's what happens when you fly for (laughs) El Chapo Air. Yeah, right. Making that sad dough. Nice, nice hustle there. Well, anyways, Jose is back and he is here to help me get you guys hooked on aviation. All right. Well, this week, if you guys have ever been interested in flying EMS or aka emergency medical services, aka helicopter ambulance, this week's episode is for you. We're going to learn about what life is like as an HAA pilot. From an experienced individual who has flown medical service from the geezers of Yellowstone. <laughs> That's what I said. <laughs> to the badlands of the Dakotas. <laughs> to the beautiful state of Oregon. <laughs> I don't know. Do we, no, we'll keep that in there. <laughs> okay. We're gonna we're gonna get into some juicy subjects this week as well, guys. Crew resource management, otherwise known as CRM. And as always, we're gonna get into some good old fashioned aeronautical decision making, sterile cockpit versus silent cockpit, the importance of good crew cohesion and how to accomplish a solid crew brief. And an emergency situation, we're just gonna call DuckTales. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, it's a crazy story, guys. So we're uh, we're gonna get right to it. Let's do it. Isaac Etherington. Seen calls. Wow. Grizzly bear attack, snowmobile accidents, hunting accidents. Just this is Isaac Etherington, and I am forever on the fly. That was hilarious. Ah, good to see you guys. What an honor. Good Very to excited you to be too. here. Uh, you too, brother. Thanks yeah. for uh, coming on, man. My so, great happy pleasure, guys. <laughs> great happy pleasure. God, I can't even. All right. Yeah, I guess. I mean, the last time I saw you was at Papillon, and it's like freaking years ago, man. Insane. Yeah. So, yeah, I left in 2016, but I did a longer than normal stint there. I did a year at the South Rim and then like a year and a half, two years older. And when did you come on, Jose? Uh, I came on two thousand January two thousand seventeen, and then was there for about a year or so, a year yeah, and a half. It's a cool, cool, cool spot to to have some adventures, right? Yeah, I miss yeah. like the camaraderie, I guess you know, of all the homies well, you know, all there. Agreed. I tell people all the time. I'm sure you guys experience this. I don't know if there's another operation in the helicopter business where you can be in contact with like 30 to 60 different rotor pilots in a day 
You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think we had it bolder. You know, I think we'd do like had 25 to 30 in the morning shift and then 20, 25 in the evening shift. So it's just crazy. Every day you got all those people you're crossing paths with. And I mean, the networking that happens there is amazing. I'm still running into people, you know, that, that have worked there, gone through there. And I'm constantly looking at my phone. Like I have that name. I know that person. Oh yeah. You know, and it's, the degrees of separation are crazy. You know, in the real world, they say there's seven degrees of separation between every person, you know, in a country. And in this, I think in the helicopter pilot world, I think it's one, if you don't know that person, someone you know and work with knows that person. You know what I mean? Yeah, mm-hmm. really small industry. Um, say the first piece of advice that my flight instructor gave me was, um, you know, throughout school, every day is a job interview. Mm-hmm. You know, um, show up dressed well professionally says that see that that tool over there that's you know five months behind you and acting like a total doofus that could be the guy in two years that's interviewing you for a job and i've seen exactly that happen you know yeah. it's crazy and he looked over at the guy with the dr dre chronic shirt on you know with the marijuana. <laughs> maybe don't do that at flight school because that's gonna someone is gonna remember that you know when you're going in for your job so it's uh it's funny and it's legit. It's true. It's true. I've seen that. I've seen guys who were a couple of years behind me in the, in the career path, interview me for a job, one yep. time, you know, and I've, I've had a good buddy who is one of my best friends in the business. We kind of paralleled each other through the, the whole, the whole industry so far doing the same jobs, same flight schools, all that kind of stuff. And, um, he was just a little bit crass, good guy, but rubs a lot of people the wrong way, man. And I, I, there was in two different occasions, I've had people come up to me and say, Hey, you know, uh, we're not going to hire this guy because he was just, he just rubbed me so wrong back in flight school. It was like, you know, five, six years ago, you know, Mm -hmm. and he's still just your behavior follows you around. Holding that um, grudge, man. That's a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Sucks, but it's reality, you know? First first impressions. Everything, everything. Man, what have you been up to since I've seen you since 2016? It's been, yeah, five years. Yeah. So, yeah, 2016, I left Papillon for uh, Air Medical, and I've been doing that ever since, and I've kind of been... Boy, I've kind of been hopping around companies. Hopefully, I've recently I've been with this company I'm with now for a year, and I'm hoping to stay here for a long time because it's an awesome place. But I went to a little operation called AMRG, Air Medical Resource Group, and they were a they're not they they have changed a bit, but they were kind of a an umbrella corporation had a bunch of companies under, and I went to apply for one of their companies in uh, North Dakota, and it was a really great place to to learn EMS. Luckily I was jumping into a B3E, a new A star. So I had a lot of experience in models. So all I really had to learn was the the business itself and not you know, the style of flying and not the new aircraft. So that was pretty cool. I spent a year in North Dakota, a little over a year, and we were supporting uh, the oil fields out there. This uh, We were in a really um, kind of an interesting little town. I don't know if you've ever been to North Dakota, but there's this little, little paradise on earth called Williston, North Dakota. I've been Um, there. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and again, anyone listening, get to Williston, man. Williston. It sounds cold. Uh, They're Walmarts off the chain. (laughs) You know what? People ask me what they were asking me, what's in Williston? And I'd be like, Ooh, they got a really good Walmart. (laughs) (laughs) That kind of stuff. 
<laughs> so if you're if that's on your tourist list, go check it out. But they are they are fascinating. It's a little side note, just fascinating place. Um, not the prettiest place, but great people. Um, they uh, they experienced this crazy boom when the fracking happened, and this little town for several years between like 2000, I think 2012 and 2014 was just it was more expensive to get apartment there than it was waterfront San Francisco, um, and you had just people making six figures with no background checks and just this huge boom. And with all that influx of money came crime, uh, organized crime. We had biker gangs. We had crazy drug production, prostitution. All The FBI set up a little field office, but the, I mean, the local sheriff's department, they, they, didn't, they are unable to, to beef it up. So Hence the need for air medical. You know, mm. we did a, did some a lot of stabbings and a lot of crazy safety accidents out in really? the oil fields. Whoa. Like, where's where's OSHA out there? I don't know. Um, we had, <laughs> uh, my first. Uh, we can talk about my first scene call out there in a while. But anyway, uh, back to the timeline. Did uh, a year, year and a half in Williston, and then I got transferred to what was my my dream job. I went with um, I went to. Uh, Cody, Wyoming, and flew a year and a half right outside of Yellowstone Park. Yellowstone. My house was a 20-minute drive from the east gate of Yellowstone. The drive to the park was way better than the park. And the flying, another brand new B3E. So I got this <laughs> sweet mountain helicopter. And we were landing above 10,000 on almost a daily basis. And the scene calls wow. grizzly bear attacks snowmobile accidents, hunting accidents, just these and beautiful backcountry flying and very, as far as the terrain goes, just really austere, non-permissive, hostile, you know, big mountains, high altitude. And it was cool because the culture there was, was different. You know, a lot of just a lot of cowboys and mountaineers and backpackers. And these people all worked, you know, as our paramedics and flight nurses and it's cool because, you know, if, if you had a chip light out there, you could be camping for two days before wow. someone comes to get you. So, you I was going to say that's quite the difference gear. from yeah, Williston to Cody. Different. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and now, now I'm flying up and down I-5, you know, so I, I my new job came into my new, and we've got the company I work for now, Lifelight Network. We, they just dominate the Pacific Northwest here. I'm in Oregon. And, um, you know, I showed up to work with my Wyoming chest rig, you know, this tactical looking chest rig with all my three days of survival gear in case we land in the mountains. And I pretty much got laughed out of the room. Like, yeah, <laughs> We're flying up and down. I've, we got to cross the mountains every now and then, but we have so many bases in this area. I mean, there's a company car, you know, two hours away from every place. You're out there looking like Bear grills. Oh, You're yeah, just dude. like, I'm ready yeah, to yeah. filter my own <laughs> piss out here. Let's do it. <laughs> we had this joke. Had Arnold joke. on commando. <laughs> totally i've gotten like like hydraulic or paints you know like, we we have this joke you know because we we have some survivalists you know here in um you know uh and and the cody place we always had this joke like if we crash you know we always talk about you know what's your you know what do we you know sir, what's the survival situation look like you know we're running through scenarios and it's funny where i was talking about well you know matt over here He's, we're going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to have a nice fire and Matt's going to be like, we're going to look over and he's going to have his loincloth that he fashioned out of, you know, raccoon skin. And he's got a skewer 
with his rabbits and his squirrels and he's got the hydraulic fluid war paint and then the camera pans over and there's the freeway <laughs> you know he's ready amazing <laughs> oh, that's hilarious so wait, what, why did yeah. you switch jobs if you love cody so much what was the yeah. driving factor behind that well that's a good question um uh Again, the mountain flying, the environment, the people, I, I personally, I politically just loved that Wyoming culture and lifestyle there and, and all that kind of stuff. It was awesome. Um, this per- And no company's perfect, of course. Loved. This was Guardian Flight. And, you know, Guardian Flight is owned by the same company that owns Reach and Medtrans and Aerivac Life Team and all these companies. And it was awesome experience. Um, not the greatest, you know, could have done better for benefits. And, mm. uh, my wife was getting pregnant for the second time and we, the, the, the town of Cody was awesome, but we weren't too sure about, you know, how, you know, having a baby there in hospitals and she was getting really homesick for the Pacific Northwest. And I was too. And, uh, so we were always kind of like, Hey, if something comes up back in Oregon or Washington, we're going to leap at it. And the, and the opportunity, uh, came to get back to Oregon. So we jumped on it. And now it's funny now, uh, every time I'm, we miss it a lot. Every now and then I hear my wife say, man, I sure do miss Cody. And I'm like, grass is always green. Yeah, right? It is. It is. Yep. Um, yeah. So Cody, Wyoming, and then, um, and then did a year down in Klamath Falls, Southern Oregon. So right on the Northern California border, Beautiful. pretty, you know, just a hop over to, to the coast on that side. And, um, all, that was with, uh, reach. So same, same umbrella, different, different brands. And, um, and that, that was a really cool spot too. That was a good transition because it was still, still pretty wild and still pretty mountainous down there. And, and the scene calls were interesting. Um, uh, just a lot of national park stuff. We had crater Lake there and we have the lava beds down South. Um, pretty, you know, pretty, not as busy as Cody, but, uh, some, some fascinating stuff. And I've got some fun stories we can, we can tell you about as we go on but yeah, then we, from, yeah. Then from Klamath Falls <laughs> up to, uh, to Life Flight Network, which again is an awesome company. It's one of the only nonprofits, um, medevac companies that I'm familiar of that are not hospital based programs. And, um, it's just been awesome. My first, uh, my first twin job as a captain, not a PIC. So I'm, I'm flying a twin and they've got me trained up in a couple of different aircraft. And, um, for the first year I was doing a lot of roving and moving around the whole footprint of the company and just, um, cool, cool company and back home in, in Oregon. So that's where, the, where we're at now. Were the scene calls in Oregon have bear attacks as well? <laughs> we haven't had any bear attacks in Oregon. <laughs> no, when no. You... and I'll tell you those. Yeah, those bear attacks are are, are a trip. And and over, you know, we there was a couple of times when the crew would have to uh, leave the helicopter and go for a nice little hike. You know, um, and in some cases, uh, horseback rides with the with the ground personnel. So when um, you landed, that's it. Um, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, but when you landed yeah, on we, like the bear attack or whatever. Was there somebody out there with a gun or, you know, just in case it was like a serial bear attack, you know, kind of like Shark Week, you know, <laughs> like how well, they have like so serial um, great whites out there, you know, is there a little... <laughs> that's in, well, that's a really good question. Um, you know, in the Yellowstone area, um, back in the day, 
people hunted bear on a regular basis, just like getting a deer, you would apply for your tag. They, you know, the EPA or the forest service or whoever, or fish and game would determine how many bears do we need to be hunted to keep the population under control. Now Yellowstone, anywhere there's a bear problem in the country, the bears get shipped to Yellowstone and there's this huge population and we, they don't hunt them anymore. And the bears are smart. They know that they're not hunted and the people that have lived there their whole lives are they see more and more bear attacks happening. And it's crazy because bear usually eat fish and berries, right? They only really get super carnivorous when uh, they're about to go into hibernation and they're storing up their fat for the year. And that's when hunting season happens. And back in the day, according to the locals, the gunshot would mean it's hunting season and we need to stay away from the humans. Now the bear hear that gunshot and it's a dinner bell. And bear attacks usually happen when hunters are dressing out their game, when they've made the kill and they're cutting up the game and backpacking it up to hike down. That's when the bears attack because it's an easy meal. And so to answer you. Dang, oh, it froze on no. a good part. You froze, you froze <laughs> right on the. So you said to get to. Um, so, so yeah, get to, to answer it. your question, Jose, yeah, a prof- the professional hunting groups and experienced hunters will, not, you know, you always go out in a, in a team and yeah, it's, it's like people will create a perimeter and stand guard with weapons donned while the other, a couple people are dressing out the game so that they can defend. And, Dang. Um, yeah. And there, there's one that I did not go on, but I was at the base when it happened. Um, that was a great story. Um, professional hunting group and up there in Yellowstone there's a lot of people that get paid to take they go on you know the guided hunting trips so mm-hmm. there was a professional group with some tourists they everyone got their their deer their elk except for this one gal and there was a guide that said hey we'll stay back another day we'll get you your kill while the rest of the team hikes down and and that was where they made the mistake uh they shot an elk he was teaching this woman how to dress out the game when a grizzly bear came up and grabbed her by the shoulder and threw her away. Oh my God. Lacerations all across the chest, dislocated shoulder instantly, you know, passes out and the bear is down there, you know, on the game. And this, I don't know, these, these guys are badass in Wyoming. You know, I don't know why he didn't pull out, you know, they all pair carry 10 millimeter blocks. Mm -hmm. I don't know why, what happened, but he decided to pull out his big hunting knife, jumped on the bear (laughs) and started stabbing it. No way. No way. Yeah. And, and the bear, Hey, this is the story. And the bear (laughs) is like, Oh, mosquito. (laughs) And rips him up. He's got lacerations all over and he's thrown away. And at that point, the bear grabs the elk and runs away. This guy was able to, with, you know, just bleeding, he was able to secure his own wounds, get over to his client, fix her up, put her on the back of the horse. They all carry spot trackers. So he hits the little emergency button. Then we have pre-designated LZs out there. He's able to start hiking down to the nearest field and then call guardian flight. You know, he gets dispatched via spot and they go up and, and meet him. So what the and it was heck? A, yeah. Wow. And a funny story about that, that happened a week before my first day in Cody, Wyoming. I show up for my first day, excited, nervous mountain flying. I get this in my first day. I get a little, I'm, I'm shadowing another pilot. We go on a little familiarity flight, look at some of the LZs, get an idea for the, for the, the terrain. And, um, 
and we're signing off for the day. And he goes, oh, yeah, by the way, Isaac, your first day by yourself tomorrow, there's a reporter that's coming in to interview you about that bear attack that happened. I was like, well, yeah. I, I wasn't on that flight. I don't know. And, you know, and he's like, oh, you'll be fine. You hear, you heard the story. So I had to tell that story just like I told you. And it was kind of like, it was, yeah, here you go. Here you go. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's insane. Fun stuff. Fun base, man. Really cool experience up there. Cody is the home of Annie Oakley, you know, and Buffalo Bill. So, I mean, it's gun culture and real life cowboys and that real hardcore country living, but then they have the national park. So it's like 50% cowboys 50% hippie granola rock climbing <laughs> national parkers, which is makes for a really sweet culture, you know? Yeah. Uh, so they, you know, you've got the, just the hardcore American flags and patriotism. And then on the other side, you've got your nice organic restaurants and your fancy grocery stores. So it was a, it's a good, it's a good, uh, mixture there. Nice. Yeah. So I, I like again, their statues yeah, that they have out there in that, that city or in that town. Yeah. Like the, yeah. The one with, um, the two dudes in the canoe right in front of the airport, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just looks so epic in front of the American flag. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just yeah. like, I just wanted to salute it. I was like, I was like, yeah. love it. <laughs> it's the why it's the West. It is. It's the West, you know? So it's pretty cool. Are you, Americana. are you um, stationed at a permanent base or uh, what is your schedule like currently at the base that you're flying at? Up there in Oregon. So as as of last week, permanent base. But for the first year with this company, I was afloat. So I basically was responsible for covering bases within my section, my region. And then, of course, they would send me outside of the region as needed. Um, So for the first year, a lot of travel, a lot of visiting new bases, um, trying to keep my mind wrapped around the different uh, models of aircraft that each base has, which they're not all standardized at this company. So little challenges there, but super cool because I'd be flying with one crew, you know, on the beach, you know, for one week, and then I'd be in the Valley for the next and Columbia Gorge after that. So it was pretty, it, the float thing is very cool. Anyone, you know, if you're considering this job, it's a great way to get a feel for, for the company and meet a lot of new, new crowd. It's tough because uh, every base is a little different and you have to learn that on the fly. Um, the downside is family, the family life, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I'd say if I was single, I would be all over the float thing because I like, I like living out of a backpack, kind of like, you know, going from hotel to hotel and then that crew house to crew house, that kind of thing. But man, it's hard when you've got a family at home and you don't have a set schedule and, you could be gone for three days. You could be gone for 10 and you don't know how much time you're going to have off and that kind of thing. So, and that's, you know, that's kind of the nature of the helicopter business too. Um, I'm not sure, you know, you've done some different stuff. And for me, I, even before Papillon was doing a lot of traveling for work and very volatile when it comes to, you know, keeping, keeping the family secure and cozy at home. um, It's been a, 14 year mission now to land a job where we can just be home every night, you know? Yeah. We have it pretty sweet over here for that. And neither of us have families, but if we did, it'd be pretty sweet. Uh, we're home. I mean, I I work from 4am until 2pm Sunday through Wednesday, and then I'm off Thursday through, through Saturday. And so four and three home by two every day, 
Man, it'd be a That's pretty, a pretty s- sweet gig. It'd be a pretty sweet gig if I had a family, yeah. you know, that yeah, what, what we do out here. But it's pretty rare. You know, this kind of a schedule is pretty rare in the industry. I haven't really seen any sort of, um, I mean, EMS pilots who get based somewhere where they live, you know, where you don't have to commute to your next job and you're either working a seven day on, seven day off or a 14 day on, 14 day off. Um, yeah, I mean, EMS can work for family life, just you got to find the right situation, the right city. And unfortunately, when you're first starting off, it's kind of hard to get the base that you want originally. Usually the jobs are in undesirable <laughs> locations when you're exactly when you're first getting hired on. And then once you get a couple of years experience under your belt, you can start applying for the more desirable cities, bases, like places that you would actually want to live so that's something if someone was thinking about going into emergency medical that, um, you know, you could probably not expect to be stationed at somewhere that you want to be for the first, what would you say, like year, do a year there, two years. It really just depends on what, what opens up for you, huh? It is a roll of the dice, Diane. It's yeah. so you, you don't know. I mean, seniority is usually key. You know what I mean? But I think a lot of companies will take into consideration, oh, is this job going to be a long-term thing for this person? Or is this ju- or is this guy just trying to hop to the next spot? So, but yeah, I mean, I I put in a year with this company before I landed this one. And I, I feel like I got really lucky because this is, you know, right down the street from Portland, Oregon, where a lot of people are you know, wanting to be. And um, so it's really a roll of the dice, I think. But I think you said it, you really need to plan on working somewhere that is not your dream spot for, for a long time, you know, before, before you can get locked in. And you said it also the, um, you know, usually helicopter EMS operations are stood up where there is, it's usually small towns far away from urban centers because that's where, you know, that's where they need, that's where they have the need to get people from the rural areas back into town. And, um, I have found that, uh, a small percentage of these bases nationwide are in really nice, awesome, desirable places. And when they are, everybody in the company wants to get there. So yeah, uh, you gotta, you gotta stick it out for sure. And if anybody's interested in just seeing what's out there, there's a website called jsfirm.com and it's a great resource, a place that you can go just to see what jobs are out there. Most of the EMS companies, most of the helicopter companies, at least the big ones, are going to be posting the job listings through this website and you can kind of gauge what the industry is doing just currently, what kind of hour requirements these jobs have. So again, that's a really good resource, jsfirm.com, to go check out just to just to see what's out there. Now, when you were a float pilot, did you find it, uh, you mentioned, you know, you're going from base to base, you're working in different areas of operation, um, but you're also working with different crews. And I would imagine that working with different crews could either be a good thing or, or it could be a bad thing because um, you don't really get to know your crew members very well. And you're, you're doing such a complex mission that I, I would think it would be pretty crucial that you, you know, have really good communication with the crew members that are on board with you. So what were some of the challenges that you faced in that type of way? That's an awesome question. Uh, crew cohesion is just such a 
an important factor of any business where you are captaining, you know, a team. Um, and it's an art form and it's a science and it's really takes, uh, I, I believe it takes a lot of, um, kind of mental gaming to really do it well. And some people like have people person skills, you know, and I think I'm one of them. I, I have no problem talking to strangers and I, I can kind of sense eh, maybe this person doesn't like me too much or this person's nervous or, or whatever. And you can kind of readjust your, your um, approach to get people warmed up to you. And I think that's where it starts is just, you know, finding ways to become a good communicator. Um, beyond that, and it's, there's so many little aspects of good crew building, and especially if you're working with a new team on a regular basis. And for all you pilots out there, I'll tell you, for me, it starts with the daily brief, the safety brief. Um, uh, you don't want to flood them with all this non-essential information, but, you know, I've seen some pilots, you know, just step in like, yeah, you know, the weather's going to be this, their craft's looking good, let's, you know we're going to have a good day, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, most operations will, you know, respect those FAA rules. And there's, there's a little bit of a checklist of things you need to, to burn through. And it, can, it starts usually out with the I'm safe checklist. So I always start off by saying, Hey guys, I'm, I'm illness free. I'm no one told me I had to be on any meds and I'm not on any meds. I'm not supposed to be on. I'm sober. I'm well fed. I am rested and I'm emotionally stable. And how are you guys doing? Open up the conversation. And then we move into weather talking about the daily weather, condition of the aircraft. Hey, who's riding up front? Who's on the night vision goggles with me? Uh, what's the, you know, what's the moon looking like tonight? And we have fun and we open up the conversation. Usually a good five minute brief will turn into a 15, 20 minute because you get your crew talking about what's going on with them. You know, things that happened on last shift and it, you know, you cover all these checklist points that we have to cover by the end of the brief. If I've never worked with a crew, if I've done it right, they're like, Oh, okay, this guy's a professional. He knows what's going on. You know, hopefully my brief will give them a little bit of a, the ability to breathe deep and relax a little bit. He's got it. We don't have to worry about him flying this aircraft. We can focus on our job. That's where it starts. And then after that, it's just, it's this, this uh, art form, something that I think we're all working on as pilots is the, the, the art of closed loop communication, yep. right? <clears throat> Sending, I receiving, want, verifying that you've received yeah, the message. Exactly. And even just on, you know, just making sure that when we are flying, they have, there's no question. They, they have, they're never wondering, why is he doing this? Why is he turning? Why is he descending? You know, why is that enunciator going off? You know, I'm always letting them know what my intentions are, what I'm seeing, you know, Hey, you're going to work flying a little close to the hill over here. As we make this turn, you guys are going to hear bitch and Betty come on and yell terrain at us. No factor. We got this. Uh, you know, um, for me, I, I just don't want them second guessing anything. And I use my voice to let that happen. Um, uh, some pilots, I know it's just, it's a different style. It's a different, different technique, you mm -hmm. know, say, Hey, we're landing sterile cockpit for me. It's like, Hey guys, I got the hospital helipad at 11. The winds are coming from nine. That means we're going to make a descending left hand turn to the pad you know, and then we go through our pre-landing checklist. They're they're never guessing what's going on. And, um, you know, same thing for weather. This is what I'm seeing. You guys might notice visibility is going down a little bit. We're still safe. We're still legal. I feel good. This is my secondary plan. We've got a contingency. 
how you guys feeling, you know, just keeping the convert, keeping the communications open. I think that a silent pilot, uh, kind of becomes a scary pilot when you're just a passenger. Yeah. That makes sense. True. I mean, yeah, there's definitely two different techniques because you always hear that, you know, during critical phases of flight, when you're taking off, when you're landing, when you're, you know, in, in these situations, especially when you're in EMS and you're landing at an unknown landing zone, um, where they're like sterile cockpit is key. Like there should be no talking in the cockpit during the critical phases of flight. But, um, just as you said, like, I, I think that as long as you're, you're talking out loud, you're also talking to yourself when you're, when you're talking yourself through this. Cause, um, you know, it's making sure that you're not mentally checking out during those critical phases of flight, or even if it's a landing zone that you've been to a million times, you have to make sure that you're continuing to go through those checks yourself instead of just mind-numbingly going in and landing at that spot you've landed a million times. But if you're talking out loud, you're also reminding yourself about these things and the things that you're checking, you're communicating with your crew. And I mean, as long as like, you know, there's not a lot of chatter, I would say like a sterile cockpit could also just mean no, just talking back there to each other, you know, laughing or joking around, like as long as it's pertaining to the mission and the safety of the mission, I think that it's totally okay to communicate out loud with your crew. I would say that that's accurate. Yeah. You said it. I would argue that sterile cockpit doesn't not mean silent cockpit. Um, It means that we're, when we are talking, we're only talking about the landing and things that are going on. And, you know, I know some pilots are like, you know, I don't want to teach my crew how to brief um, approach plates. I don't really need them learning a lot about weather. That's my job. They do their job. And I, I like, I try to think of the EMS operation as, kind of similar, more similar to like a military air crew. And that's something I include in my brief. Hey, you guys aren't just professional passengers that are doing your job while I'm doing mine. We are an air crew that all three of us have the equal ability to affect the safe outcome of a flight. So we're going to communicate like that. And when it comes to sterile cockpit, I love the back and forth. Okay, guys, we're approaching, you know, 300 feet AGL. Here's our descent angle. I've got the trees up there at my 11 o'clock. I'm going to lose sight of the trees over at my nine o'clock. So, hey, Jack on the left, keep your eyes on those trees and let me know if they're looking like they're too close. And that just gets everybody, like you said, involved when we're doing our orbit around a scene call, you know, unimproved landing area, whether it's a high school football field or a little hole in the woods, you know, there's that list that we go through, you know, there's a lot of acronyms for it, for all the things we want to see before landing off airport. That is an out loud process for me. And it's not just for me to go through the list. It's so that they wake up and go, oh yeah, okay. He sees power lines there. Yep. I see him too. He sees the dog, the the bushes. Yep. It's a dusty surface down there. We might get some brown and I'm talking about all this stuff so that they can come alive and start looking at it. And their eyes are there to augment my situational awareness. You know what I mean? And then if there's something that once they're alive and they're looking, they might see something that I don't. And that's the whole key about the air crew versus the professional passengers and the pilot. But, and I tell them, um, you know, that, uh, that's, you know, whenever they're not task saturated with their, with their patient work, anytime they just, I want them to maintain that scan mentality so that, you know, their situational awareness is augmenting mine. And boy, we, you know, you know, the good crews talk. And um, again, yeah, it's not silent cockpit is not necessarily the sterile cockpit, but you said it when you're coming into that helipad, what we don't want to be talking about is, you know, is that, is that Foxy ER nurse going to be in there today? And what, what, you know, 
Tom Cruise doesn't fly like this in Mission Impossible, you know? So yeah. <laughs> um, that kind of stuff, just to the job at hand. You're not going to sure. tip the hat. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't, you know, when I saw tip the hat, I was like off. <laughs> I can't, I haven't finished that movie. Like, I've oh, never even heard oh. of that movie. Yeah. San Andreas, oh, The Rock. Oh, oh, to, oh got it. Yeah. 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 And yeah. you know, I've always said I'm going to go back and watch it because it's a helicopter movie and I want to speak the same language as all the cool kids. But I just I saw saw this little side view of the helicopter going down into the into the the uh, the sinkhole, you know. The, and I was, so apparently, Tom Cruise during the yeah. filming of the last Mission Impossible, you know, he's he's a pilot, so he was flying the oh, yeah. the A star, and he over torqued yeah. the crap out of that thing, and it blew up. It's sitting it on fire. Yeah, it it's sitting. Uh, it's sitting in the hangar at Nyon up in New York. Oh, yeah, I've got, well, well, it's not in their hangar. It's in their actual like where they're checking people in. I'll say a little bit of geekdom. I love that scene. That is a great. Anyone that loves the A star watch mission impossible yeah there is an amazing a star scene i remember i was in the theater with my wife and we were watching it and i I remember just like elbowing her like that's a b3e right there look the panel that's that's what it sounds like if if we were flying like that it would sound like that you know like that's it that's the light that's what would happen you know and and she's just like shut up (laughs) totally totally geek out on movies so we we're going to do like a YouTube series where we're picking apart helicopter scenes and movies and yeah. like, you know, check, yeah. seeing what, uh, what would be realistic or what they totally get wrong, you know? But yeah, I thought that would be kind of fun. I love, I love the rock, you know, he's, I like it, you know, I like his oh, movies, but there was a, there was a scene in one of his movies where he starts a helicopter using the crank button. <laughs> You know, he's like, I I forgot the, I'm going to mess up the quote, but paraphrasing like the chick is like, the tail's broken on the helicopter. And he's like, we don't need the tail to fly. (laughs) And then he hits the crank button and like they fly off the roof. And I was just like, right. You know, get after it. For a big budget film, I mean, probably the amount that can go into a good, um, what do they call them? A, uh an advisor like an, right? a consultant you know <laughs> like a helicopter yeah, exactly. consultant Come like on. just there know. needs to be someone that says you don't push that button dumbass you do this one <laughs> right you know so. you hit the yeah. on switch <laughs> yeah i mean i would just imagine they're just like i don't know just press a button in there and pretend like you're starting the thing you yeah. know and there's the director's like ah no one's gonna notice but there's us the small group of people <laughs> that are like yeah. no it's like a it's not like, right. i'm a big uh I like firearms, you know, and I like to go shoot. With you, buddy. You know, and um, I always trip out on movies where the dude never fucking reloads. You know, I'm like, God damn, how long is that magazine clip? It's like a handgun and he's shooting like 100 rounds. Well, you know what other guns have unlimited ammo? These guns. (laughs) Oh, hey. Hey, are you guys are you guys anywhere near a veterinarian right now? Because those pythons are sick. Oh my god! All right, sorry, a little. Where is this going? 
I was really Good. not sure where that was going to yeah. go. That's hilarious. Yeah. yeah. Back back to the advisor. I've seen, Jose, to your point, I can't remember what movie it was. I saw a movie recently where the guy's scope on the rifle was mounted backwards. <laughs> Probably just because it looks cooler that way, uh, you know? But yeah. then someone that knows, and uh, I think in aviation, there's a lot of that. One of my favorites that I, I can't forget, can't get in mind, the TV show Lost. Everybody seen Lost? Yep. I don't remember what season it was. There was the guy that played Lawnmower Man back in the day. He was the helicopter pilot that crash landed on the island. Well, he didn't crash land. He audited it. But there's a scene where they run out of gas over the ocean. And as they run out of gas, the rotor starts spinning slower and slower <laughs> and slower. Because we're out of gas. The engine stops. So, right, right, right. so the rotor is just going to slow down. <laughs> and, and he's like. I can't get two hands on the cyclic. I can't control it. You know, yeah. you can hear it. You can hear it. The sound effects. It's like, Oh man. Or yeah. Like if they, if they lose a, an engine and then the helicopter just starts spinning out of control, like they had a tail rotor failure and you're like, that's that. It, the, and the pilot would have to be a complete moron to make the helicopter spin out. Of, they're like entering an auto rotation, just full pedal, not doing anything else, just <laughs> stalling the rotors that, to make that, it spin. That's me in the simulator. What's going on? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm just kidding. Exactly. Okay, um, now just one more for, for, the, for the audience. The A-Team movie that came out back 2007 or something like that. The helicopter scene. They're being chased by a by a Mexican jet. They cross the border, and this jet, the Mexican Air Force, fires a, a heat seeker at it. You know, and so what do they do? I'm going to turn off the engine so that the heat seeker doesn't pick up our signal. <laughs> so he shuts it down, and, and he shuts it down. And instead of entering an auto and gliding down and watching the missile go overhead, the rotor system stops. Starts falling. And okay, the missile goes overhead, and then we restart the engine, and that's a good one. There was a pretty accurate one that I saw recently. I, f- I forgot the name of it. They were trying to sling load like a big thing of like a big load of gold or something over a mountain, and they were like pretty accurately oh, yeah, talking yeah, yeah. about like. Triple. Triple Frontier, the the performance of the aircraft, and it was starting to come down, you know, because they were getting higher. Yes. They're like, "Oh, the density altitude is getting." I'm like, "Wow, they're actually getting pretty accurate with yeah. this." Yeah. No, anyway, oh, sorry. What's up? You're right, Diane. It was a good movie, and I know a lot of people hated that movie. I loved it. I thought it was a good, like the all the the tactical shooting stuff was awesome. The gear, and I I agree with you, Diane, on that point. Um, but. I think that that was an affront to all professional helicopter pilots. All right. I know we're in the movie review now, but if you look back at the movie, they're like, Oh my God, we got way more cash than we thought. Holy shit. And the pilot goes up to the, you know, he goes up to Ben Affleck and he goes, dude, we can't make it over the Andes with all this money. We can't do it. We're overloaded. He's like, and, and Ben Affleck's like, well, I thought this copter was, was rated, you know, for this many pounds. And it's like, yeah, that's at sea level. We got to go over the Andes. And he's like, well, you want to just leave all this cash on the runway? And the pilot goes, yeah, okay, it'll make it. <laughs> ah, right, right there. I'm like, You're di- that just Yeah, you just, you just killed, killed everybody. everybody. You just, yeah. Uh, oh, man. Man, so bad decision-making, bad decision-making. Okay. Now, I want to be in on this, uh, on this uh, movie review thing. I think we got a good thing. Yeah, I think, I think it'd be really fun. I really wanted to get into – so – 
that actually kind of is a perfect segue into what I wanted to talk about next, which is internal and external pressures. Right. This is something that we always have to deal with as pilots. And especially I would imagine in EMS dealing with knowing that there's a patient on the other end of that flight that needs your help and that pressure that there is to either fly in bad weather or fly when you're not comfortable. And I know that every crew member on board has veto power. So any of the med crew um, can always say no go. And so in your experience, What have been some of the biggest um, internal pressures, external pressures of being an emergency medical pilot? And how do you deal with them? Yeah, well, I think you have to set your limits before you even clock in. You know what I mean? You got to have your weather minimums. You got to have your visibility minimums. The FAA has theirs. That's legal. Every company is going to have theirs. Sometimes it's higher. Sometimes it's equal to the FAA. But each pilot has to have that hard line where they say, this is what's going on. It's a no-go. And every pilot needs to, you got to have a secondary. You should never get in that helicopter, go flying to point B, unless you've got a contingency plan for where you can go, where you can land, what you know, what you can do if things start going wrong. But the, the pressure is, it's, a, it's an emotional game. And I'll tell you, I still struggle with it. And it's funny because um, you said it. Three to go, one to say no. So any if if at any time a crew member is not liking it, it doesn't. You could be as safe as can be. If they get the hair on their back of their neck stands up, if their spidey sense starts tingling, they say, "Isaac, I need to be on the ground." We're like, "No questions asked." I'm not even gonna talk. Not even gonna question it. We land. We call that flying to the lowest comfort level on board. And every pilot, even you know the operation I work for now, we've got pilots from so many walks of life military background, civilian, we got coasties, we've got combat pilots, we've got badass firefighting sling loaders that have just there. Some of them are used to flying in nasty weather and pushing the edge of marginal VFR. And some are not. And you can kind of know, Hey, this guy's going to turn down more flights than this guy is, but this guy over here, he might be coming back with a patient on board, which is a really big no, no too, you know, politically. Um, but there's an interesting thing that I struggle with. I've been in EMS for five years now and, and I, I started with flight instruction, like a lot of civilians. And I went to agriculture, you know, crop, um, you know, cherry drying and hazelnut harvest and frost control flying in horrible weather. And then, uh, firefighting, you know, get me as a co-pilot and in, in a heavy and man, th- those are some crazy weather days. And, you know, we all have different experiences, but in those jobs, even the canyon, boy, I, I've flown in some scary weather in the canyon and I had the boss telling me to go, you know, and, um, you, you, in, in most helicopter jobs, we build up this idea that, Hey, it's a copter. We can freaking land on the field. We can land in that guy's backyard. We can land at the parking lot. Let's go test the waters. You know, let's go out there. If it's not good, we'll turn around. Those tour passengers would rather go halfway and turn around than not go at all. You know, um, I feel like there was always this ability to just go try it out, you know, go do a check. It doesn't work. You come back. But when, when there's a patient on board and a scene call is a little different, if you're going to the scene of a car accident, you know, I think it's a little bit more acceptable to say, Hey, the weather's not hot, but you guys, I need to get my team of elite medical professionals to the scene so they can assist the, you know, just the, the tier one kind of uh, paramedics that don't have the expertise. And so that's one thing, but man, 
when you're taking a patient from point A to point B, they're in a warm, cozy bed. There's a reason they're needing to go to another hospital, but it is not cool if you have to land in the middle of nowhere because you couldn't get to point B. And I've done it a handful of times, you know, and, and it, it takes a little bit of, of gaming on, uh, I had an experience where the weather, we just encountered this big blanket of fog in the mountains. And I said, guys, we can't get this patient to the hospital. We're going to have to go land at this podunk airport. Dispatch is going to have to call us a fixed wing. It might be our company, it might be another company. That patient's going to get billed for two aircraft now. Um, and boy, we were sitting on the pavement for like 45 minutes with the engine running. I'm looking at my gas gauge going, oh, shoot, trying to keep this helicopter warm while we meet the airplane and there's been um you know there's been times where we've had a patient on board and it's just like hey we can't get over the hills here we're going to go a little farther can't do it can't do it can't do it same thing you know we have to land somewhere and give up on helicopter ops so we can put them either on a ground ambulance which they could have done in the first place or jumping on a fixed wing and again that could come from your company or or another and and so you gotta you know you got to kind of game that out and say, Hey, are, are, you know, what are the chances we're going to make it to point a, if it's not a hundred percent, a conversation needs to be had with the crew conversation needs to be had with dispatch. You know, everyone needs to be really honest about that. And sometimes you'll go anyway. And, and sometimes you won't. And typically management will say, Hey, we want you to try, you know, when the, but your crew will say that nah, we don't want to try. If there's a possibility of us having to switch to an ambulance halfway through. So it's a, it's a, it's a weird psychology. And then to get back to where I think you started the question, there's always this feeling of like, you know, we're here to help, you know, if, if, if we're being called, someone's having a horrible day and there's always a ground ambulance, but they're deciding to go with the helicopter because a, we're going to be fast when, when time is critical stroke, coma, bleeding out, heart stopped, whatever. Um, and the crew, typically on a helicopter, these crews are the elite of paramedicine, respiratory therapy, and, and nursing. These guys are like ICU, ER qualified, and they, they trump most ground personnel that are riding around in a fire truck or an ambulance. And it's great to just get them to, to the patient. Are they but employees the, of the company? Are they employees they of are, the flight company? Yep. Yep. Some companies will have, will it will train hospital employees, but yeah, they train with you. They're, they're getting paid by the same, the same, same, same bank, but, um, a really fascinating psychology that is happening in EMS and it's been going on for a while, um, is this idea that we really try to not give the pilot too much information about the emergency. Mm. Um, once, once you land, you can see what's going on. But when it comes to making the go or no go decision, when dispatch first calls us, we really, the pilot should not know if it's an eight year old or if it's a, if it's a car accident or blah, 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 blah. And I think that that's really comes from the, the insurance companies start trying and the FAA really trying to change the way pilots look at it. We just need to know, is the weather good? Can we handle the weight? go or no go. And we, and then, uh, you know, usually dispatch will talk to the pilot. Can you make this flight happen? I can do it. I accept. And then they'll call the med crew on a separate radio, separate frequency, separate phone and say, this is what we got. This is the emergency pilot accepted. Let's go. And that, 
that was a way to combat kind of this post Vietnam uh, era uh, go, no matter what, get the mission, save the guy. You know, this industry was started by people that were coming back from Vietnam who were trained to fly into these scary holes under fire, bad weather. The mission is to save the person on the ground and we're going to do it. And that caused a lot of death and a lot of destruction. And it really gave the EMS industry a really bad name in the seventies and the eighties and early nineties. Just the EMS was really dangerous and there was a lot of stuff going on. I think the insurance companies and the FAA and all these HAI, all these safety groups got together and they started changing the culture. We don't say EMS anymore. We don't say emergency medical system we, we used to call it hems helicopter emergency medical services mm-hmm. and people still use the term but as of a couple of years ago the faa said hey we would like you to start calling it haa helicopter air ambulance and a big suggestion that was made i think it came from hai i don't know helicopter association international right mm-hmm. you guys know yep. better than me they started to, to try to change the culture we don't want to call these missions anymore when you get a call from dispatch it's not a mission it's a flight request And there's all these silly little kind of head games that we're playing right now to try to change that go, 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 get the guy type of a mentality. And it's really, I think we are seeing a little change in the safety culture, yeah, which is really cool. Now there's a downside of that. And, um, you know, I, we, a lot of people talk about the safety pendulum, you know, back in the eighties, it was really on the dangerous side in the business. And then we start to, you know, when we, kind of institute all these safety protocols and these little like psychological changes like we were just talking about. And the pendulum starts to get to the point where maybe it's a little too safe. And now you have all these people that you, you have a, um, in, in the last couple of companies I've worked for, some of the, the higher ups that analyze, you know, the bean counters and the, the statisticians that are tracking everything are saying, wow, we're, we're turning down a lot of flights right now where the weather was, we think maybe a little good you know we've got a lot of med crew that are pulling the um i don't feel safe card when the pilot feels great and then now you have kind of high ups in this industry saying okay now what can we do maybe we need better training better equipment so that we can get these pilots and these med crews feeling safer to take some of the flights that we're seeing were probably well safe so it's a it's man i think it's a moving target Mm -hmm. jose and diane i think we're constantly trying to to pin it down. And I think that pendulum is going to go from safe to dangerous until we can figure out how to get everybody trained, how to get the best equipment on board and, um, and just, you know, have kind of a standard set path, but every helicopter is different. Some of them are IFR, some of them are VFR and every base is different. We got weather on the coast, we got weather in the mountains, you know, it's different in the Valley. So it's a, and it's a great question. It is a, it's a long drawn out answer, but that pressure to, to go is um, sometimes it's generated by your own self. You got to be able to check that. Sometimes it's generated by the crew. Sometimes, I mean, we had that horrible EMS crash in, I think it was Ohio a couple of years ago, right? Um, the icing. I'm not even gonna, yeah. I'm not going to mention the name of the company, but if you guys have read that report, boy, there was so much pressure from the company, like bad like really legit um, pressure coming down from the boss to make money, make money, take flights, take flights. And those pilots were rushed. It was during shift change. She, you know, the offgoing pilot said, weather's good. I would take it, you know, and then she's like, didn't even check, you know, not a lot yeah. of training, didn't grab the night vision goggles. There were so many things. And then, and then all these ex-employees talking about the way 
management behaved and management incentivized taking flights, you know there was big pressure to not miss out. Yeah, she was my friend, and, and um, it was just like oh, man. it was pretty. It was something else, you know. It was a yeah, yeah, it was a tragedy for sure. Yeah, the culture there yeah. was was um, yeah. not not a safe culture. That that was. I remember seeing the flyer that they that the company sent out to yep. all of the hospitals saying, um, "Oh, you guys um, get flights turned down. We'll always go." We'll go no matter what. We're your guy. That kind of a thing. And I mean, that was probably sent out by someone who wasn't a pilot, but one of those bean counters up there being like, we got to make money and we got to let these hospitals know that we'll go when no one else will go. But there's a reason why no one else is going. Um, yeah. That maybe people who aren't experienced in the field just might not know why these companies are really turning them down. But yeah, that that was just a, a super tragedy. Unfortunately, something that we have to deal with in the industry of, of these things happening. And it's a, the dark side of the industry. And unfortunately, it takes stuff like that to happen for changes to be made. What do they say? All the regulations are all written in blood or, <laughs> you know, yeah, because something I, always has to sure has to happen before. But I think that we're moving more into a culture of safety. Um, like you said, the pendulum has swung over to safety. I do hear kind of horror stories about there being clashes between medical crews and the pilots and the pilots being like, weather's great. And the medical crews being lazy or just not wanting to go or, you know, and pulling the, I don't feel comfortable card when maybe it's not necessary. So that's kind of something that I've heard a lot of EMS pilots have to deal with is, are, is that clash, <laughs> um, which makes it kind of a tough working environment. You know, we talked about how important it is to have good crew cohesion. And when you get situations like that where med crews and pilots don't get along and start arguing about things, then yeah, that could be a recipe for a dangerous situation. Yeah, it really is. Uh, and it's, and I think I've seen it, you know, I've worked four different brands in five years and, um, you kind of identify, you know, you got your real hard chargers on the crew side that are just willing to, to go and try it out. And then you got your folks that, uh, you know, it's after 1am and there's a good chance they're going to, you know, say they don't feel safe, even if there's nothing to not feel safe about. And the, the problem with, with even talking about this and, you know, I hate to call, call anyone out, but you know, it happens on the aviation side too. It, you, we are pumping that idea that, Hey, three to go, one to say no. So if you're not feeling good, don't call it. And, and you really have to respect that. And unfortunately it's, it's not a hard thing to exploit and take it advantage of. And I think it happens on the aviation side too. You know, you got pilots that are just maybe just not super motivated to get out and get it done. And, um, they can pull that card and you, the problem is you never want to second guess them because, you know, you don't want to be flying with anybody that doesn't feel safe about what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Going into, we're kind of staying on the same subject of safety here. Uh, when I was going through your resume that you sent, you mentioned that you have experience with Destination Zero SMS. SMS means Safety Management System. <laughs> Can you yeah. uh, kind of elaborate Actually, on what that is? Well, yeah. Um, SMS, you know, Safety Management System, and it's uh, something the FAA is really, it's, we're instituting in all these 135 operations, and it goes along with the kind of the just culture thing that, of course, you were, I heard you talking about with, um, I think, your F-16 guy that you yeah. had on recently. Um, but yeah, safety management system is just something that these companies put into place where they actually have, um, you know, these 
pillars of safety. And it's all about just inspiring uh, just culture and just keeping track of all these things. And, and the destination zero term, it's a term that I learned at Papillon actually. And that's um, destination zero referring to, you know, the goal of having no accidents in the industry uh, and got it. Um, different safety organizations out there, whether it be CAMES or, you know, uh, we can talk about CAMES too. All these, there's all these uh, certified, certificate certified, certifiers, certifiers, people that certify agencies and operators, you know, they get a stamp of approval. Okay. This company does all the things that make them extra safe. So we're going to get them a stamp. Maybe they get a deal on their insurance, but having a, an SMS program in place. And typically that means a safety coordinator, a safety officer, you know, someone at the base level that's doing monthly safety checks, having meetings, and just basically inspiring, you know, a a culture of safety in the company and every SMS program can be a little different, but they will all usually have some kind of a structure that just um, ensures an ongoing culture of awareness and safety. And, um, and yeah, that's a, for me, that was a resume point because coming into EMS, you know, that's something that they're really, really focused on. And the just culture is a, is a big one. Was there any kind of in-flight emergency you experienced while you were working in the profession that something you want to share with us? Yeah, man, I have a good story. I, uh, it, I have a, a pretty epic bird strike story. It was, um, let's see, 2017 in the North Dakota area. It was November, winter, really cold. It was about 1 a.m. We're flying and we're going from Williston to Minot. We have a patient on board, an A-star. This patient was a drunk driver. He was kind of nasty on the scene. He's intubated, so he's totally unaware of what's going on. And in this area, if you guys aren't familiar, there's a lot of lakes and small pothole bodies of water. It's a major migration area, and we're all pretty keyed into it. And we've all figured out that, hey, above thousand, above 1,000 feet, your tip, AGL, you're typically not going to run any birds. But I, I don't know the science. I think their little, their inner ears kind of serve as altimeters because you'll notice like birds oftentimes in one area, they're all flying at the same altitude, even different, different um breeds you know mm-hmm. and uh so it's dark we're under night vision goggles in this in the, this company all three of us had goggles um but i am in the front right seat of course paramedic is the back left seat he's got his goggles don scanning the other guy has his goggles flipped up and he's charting and getting ready to drop this guy up at the hospital in minot and uh the town of minot there's a there's an air force base and uh and a um class delta airport just maybe two or three miles to the north of the hospital. So we are in the controlled airspace. um, And, you know, these are long flights. There's a lot of just kind of zoning out and following the magenta line. But at this point, we were keyed in. We had already started to brief the landing. I'm totally awake and alert, looking at the lights of the city, you know, under goggles, trying to just plan out where the hospital is, how my my approach is going to be. And, I remember just a few minutes earlier, we're about 1500 feet looking down and seeing the little white specks of flocks of ducks underneath us going, Oh, good. They're way down there. No big deal. Flying along. I just made my call towers closed at this point, but I just made the call to the airport, you know, letting everybody know we're landing at the hospital in, you know, medevac. So we've got, you know, just kind of let everyone know where we are. All of a sudden it's like giant white basketballs just like six of them are just under the rotor disc instantaneously and i yell fuck you know be at the top of my lungs right as my paramedic goes birds at the same time and then it was like someone 
fired a shotgun in the aircraft and we're doing 120 knots airspeed. It was like the bang, like that, like someone fired a shotgun right next to my ear and my ears are ringing. And instantly there's this violent rush of wind. And remember I'm under goggles. So now like there's feathers, like it's like big scintillation. (laughs) I don't know if you guys fly with goggles, but scintillation is like a little TV, you know, screen stuff. And, and, but now there's like, there's big stuff and just the violent wind in my face accompanied by this like like this scary shake the helicopter's shaking because not because there's anything majorly wrong with it at this time but because there's a big hole in the windscreen like the size of two basketballs in the front left windscreen if i was sitting in the left seat man i don't think i would have lived so, so what happened is the first duck hit the aircraft and had 120 knots, this thing busted through and it vaporized on the back wall, right to the right of the paramedic, right between the two seats. And then another two birds came in through that hole and smacked, died instantly, I, I believe. So we immediately just immediately i lower the collective right down to the gauges everything's performing with a little less airspeed i'm able to slow it down guys you know we hit a bird they're like no shit you know, like, no shit and instantly these guys are pros instantly man if you guys are listening man, I, my my williston crew uh you two guys know know who you are awesome job instantly they're just like no shit and i can hear them like okay check the patient check the line stats good blah they're like making sure the patient's okay guys out intubated they're checking him and i'm like guys i'm switching out for a second i immediately get on the radio just make a quick mayday call it's you know mayday 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 the helicopter blah 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 we're structural you know integrity compromised multiple bird strike we're going to divert to the airport and on the airport management gets on right away and they're like hey we'll have emergency crews here for you i switch the crew back on I'm like, hey guys, you need to call in. Let's have an ambulance meet us at the airport. We're going to skip the helipad. We're going to the airport. They already on it. They've got an ambulance coming. So we lower power. We make that turn to the left to divert to the to the airport. Luckily, Williston is pretty flat, you know. But I'm like, okay, man, it's bloody in here. You got that nasty duck smell. Real windy. Still shaking pretty bad. The gauges look good. I'm thinking, man. These birds are big. If they hit a pitch link up there, you never know what's going on with your rotor system. Guys, we might need to auto-rotate. We might need to land before we get to the airport. Just keep your, you know, I got spots everywhere. Just keep our eyes on it. Um, We made it to the airport and uh, landed. And once we got out, man, we had struck eight to 10 birds. Oh my with the God. Yeah. And I'll tell you, and I'll tell you if you guys, well, you I hit a flock. Yeah, it was crazy. And we got, I think we were so lucky that the rotor system was intact, um, didn't hit any impact. So what happened on the, we had the wire cutting kits, you know, like the unicorn horn mm-hmm, and yeah, unicorn yeah. beard. And there was a duck right in the cutter of the upper one. <gasps> and there was a duck right in the cutter of the lower one. There was that big hole in the windscreen and we had a vaporized duck on the back wall and then there was two bodies at the feet of the med crew so i think there might have been three it might have only been two but based on that back one the way it was just a splatter i think three ducks came into the aircraft and then there was a big hole right under the searchlight where a duck had gotten in and there's a bunch of foam kind of insulation under there they had punched a hole all the way through that there was a duck up inside the nose of the aircraft somewhere Wow. And then 
Yeah, and then there the mechanic I talked to later, he found strike points of probably like six other birds. So in addition to the one on the the you know, the each on each cutter, two to three inside the aircraft, and then the one that made it inside the nose cone, eight to ten air birds that that we hit. We got very lucky that um you know that it that the rotor system was good yeah. and uh it didn't hit anyone. Boy, I think if that bird I was wearing goggles, the way that bird vaporized on the wall, if that would have just come in in front of me, I think it would have driven my goggles right into my eye sockets and we would have crashed that helicopter. That's a um, testament to Airbus's helicopter, man. The A star oh, that A star that A star is bad. <laughs> it is a sweet ride, especially the B three E and um a little, you know, back, you know, I wrote some reports. The company had me write, uh, wrote a cool article about it that got published in all these safety talks. But a big thing that um, that this company started to go with after that is alternating pulse lights. Mm. Airbus, the Autobahn Society, and some of these companies, uh, Metro Aviation, and some of these companies that make the lights have done some pretty amazing studies about how pulse lights um are the one and only thing that will deter animals. And now I've hit, since then I've hit a duck with pulse lights on, so it's not a guarantee, but um, it's amazing that those ducks don't know you're coming as loud as you are. And, you know, not really that fast in a helicopter. You'd think that these guys would have that awareness, but man, helicopters sneak up on large fowl all the time. So pulse lights are an amazing thing. And boy, anyone that's out there using goggles, I know it's a pain in the butt, but if you can adjust your goggles, it depends on your helmet. If you can, since then, visor down underneath the goggles, if possible, will be a great way to, to um, mm, prevent, prevent that stuff. something but, from hitting your face. Yeah. yeah, not a good day to be a duck either. Man, <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> those those poor guys. Probably not going to be yeah. eating, eating duck anytime soon, huh? <laughs> oh, you know, so one thing, I love duck, but one thing about duck, and the smell of the blood and the fat is oh, like no, nothing you're just, else. No, Ugh. you're just, uh, you're ruined for life. Yeah. That's and okay. I think that, yeah, the mechanic working on that bird said it took 11 months before that thing was back in service. Wow. So it was fascinating. Um, I have some great Glad pictures. Okay. I don't know how you work the podcast. I can send you guys some photos of the aftermath if you want to put those up. Yeah. The, the set, send yeah, them. Yeah, I'll, awesome. I'll kind of just put it on the, on the post. We'll, um, supplement yeah some photos with the yeah. stories so people can see what's up man that's yeah. crazy yeah, yeah i'm so was, glad you're okay i'm glad the crew's we'll okay just tag it as duck season open duck season one thing I, one thing that was funny about the um just to look we all got out and our hearts are beating we're like wow and we're walking around this aircraft just looking at the damage the massacre know, and the um and the paramedic who was eyes up when it happened that yelled birds, it was hilarious because he, he had his goggles flipped on his helmet and it was like, like the ski bum suntan. Yeah. You but know? It was like blood. all this right here was just white. And this was just all just greasy. Ugh, blood. And it looked like, like it was thick. It was just a thick layer. Like it looked like kind of like I thought it right away of that Stephen King movie, Carrie, you know, where the prom queen is just like, yeah. <laughs> oh, it was bad. And I remember, I remember just looking at those guys and the other, the nurse uh, just pointed out and just started laughing. He's like, what, what's going on, man? It took him forever to realize that he was just <laughs> covered in blood. Wow. I've only had one. Oh no, I've had maybe two, two bird strikes in my career. The first one, I was just coming out of the Canyon there yeah. at quartermaster yeah. Canyon, getting out the guzzler, you know, and I'm, I'm coming over. And I just see this sparrow and he's kind of like spiraling and I'm like, no, 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 no. And just like, yeah. bink, 
and then just like up the windshield and I'm like oh, oh no I was like oh man I literally was like my poor passengers because I was like on the verge of, of tears you know because I felt so bad I was like oh my god I'm like sorry you guys we're gonna have to go away and have to make sure it's not in my cooler <laughs> And yeah, so we had to go land at the dub and double check my uh, the cooler up there, make sure there were no birds blocking the the air coming in there. But yeah, he wasn't up That's there. A- but it was literally like, oh, it just hurt my heart. And the other one was no, yeah, just recently, not recently, maybe like a year ago, just flying out here at nighttime, uh, going over the mountains up there near. Um, through the Santa Susana Pass, I think, mm-hmm. going over there. Zeus and I were flying at nighttime and just like, bing, there were some blood and guts, but nothing ever like really yeah. penetrated the windscreen. But yeah, that's insane. Got to be careful for the with those birds, especially around here at the beach. Um, oh, yeah. Kind of like yeah. around dusk time, you're getting yep. into like the sunset time period. Those white birds are so hard to see. I've definitely snuck up on like a big flock and was like, so lucky it was flying out of santa monica airport right there at sunset everything kind of is the same color the white birds were super hard to see and all of a sudden we were just surrounded like and, and, and like literally it was one of those gut-wrenching like <gasps> moments and it was like wow i am so shocked that we didn't hit any of those and yeah that was that was kind of insane that crazy and yeah your heart just stops really does. i remember i hit i hit a little guy in the canyon and i remember little sparrow like that and i do remember the passengers like oh my god you know is it okay is it okay and i remember i remember just kind of going yeah yeah he's good yeah he flew away he's looking back he's like sorry he looks embarrassed he's fine don't worry oh uh, when i was a flight instructor we we were flying the um so when you're transitioning the shoreline by lax the departure path for los angeles uh goes over the beach so they they want helicopters to be at like 150 feet and below. It's called the shoreline transition. So you have to be like super super low down there. Down there. So you're obviously having to be really conscious of you know seagulls and kites and you know you're basically high fiving people on the beach as you're flying by. And I just remember I we were flying an R22. I had a GoPro kind of in the chin bubble of the R22, and. I just remember seeing this seagull go by underneath the chin bubble, and I was like, whoa, that was close. And I, when I went back and watched the GoPro footage, it was hilarious. So this bird obviously kind of caught in our downwash as we we're flying by it, and he rolled onto his back, and he looked straight into the GoPro. It was just like, ah! <laughs> Like he looks straight at the camera, (laughs) wings out, belly up. What the hell just happened? And yeah, it was really the expression on that bird's face was like, what the hell is going on? It was pretty funny. I I like put it in slow motion. It was just like, (laughs) (laughs) that'd be a great, that'd be a great like freeze frame. Yeah. Just like, (laughs) it's like eyes wide open. Yeah, man. I I don't know. That was such a long time ago. I, I have to have the footage somewhere, but anyways man this has been such a pleasure to see you and to talk to you again and hearing all your fun stories i i think we touched on a lot of really important important uh things on on this episode um everywhere from 
crew management to sterile cockpit versus silent cockpit, talking about external and internal pressures. Um, thank you so much for sharing your experience with us and with our listeners. I hope people at home really got some good takeaways from uh, all of your experience. Well, it's my great, happy pleasure, you guys. I'm, I'm stoked to, to get involved and I'm super stoked for both of you to see you guys, uh, you know, putting in the work and making this podcast happen. I think the aviation side of the podcast world is very light right now. And, yes. um, uh, and so it's, it's congrats. Thank you. Uh, thank thanks you. For thanks me. a lot, amigo. Appreciate it. Yeah. And some killer stories, brother. No pun intended. Literally Next time I want to hear some of your stories. Jose hit an owl once. We're gonna talk we'll talk about Ooh. that another time. <laughs> I think he's going Ouch. straight to hell for that one. <laughs> oh, poor guy. Yeah. Oh, I know. Sorry, I had to throw it out there because since we were talking about bird strikes and I know that's maybe a story uh, for another time, but yeah, <laughs> that's a deal. Yeah, I'm gonna you, hold you to that. You got it, amigo. <laughs> All right, guys. All thanks right. again. Have a good one. Thanks, sure. Isaac. See you later. Peace. Bye. Wow. Just <laughs> wow. 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 <laughs> Jose just almost knocked himself out with his own microphone. <laughs> Headbutting it. You okay? I had to close my eyes and like really think. About that was a microphone strike. Yeah. Talking about strikes. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, dude. Seriously though, um, learned so much. You know, I've never been an EMS pilot and I've always wondered what it was like to one, be a float pilot. And also I've always been really curious about that Cody Wyoming gig um, that I was seriously considering applying for. So it was really interesting to hear his uh, insight. Really oh, cool. for sure. First of all, Cody, Wyoming, I think it'd be a dope place to go fly. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. Gorgeous. Just scenic wise, beautiful. The people are cool. A little different than the LA basin. <laughs> oh my God. Way different. But I will say you ain't going to have a lot of radio calls, you know? True, true, you know? true. You might think your comms are broken. <laughs> I wouldn't know what to do. I'd be like, what, do I need to switch radios every two seconds? No. Exactly. I'm going to be on 121.5 and be like, hello? <laughs> Is there anybody Is out there? Is there anybody out there? But amazing takeaways, as always, from our guests. Everyone brings such good insight to their jobs and safety and things that they have learned along the way and that knowledge that they can pass on. And I think that's what What's really important about what we're doing here is that we're actually bringing people with real life experience and sharing it with the world because, you know, it's hard to find mentors out there and people who have done maybe something that you want to do and actually really know what the job is like or experiences that you might have. So, you know, thank yeah. you to all of our guests who have come on to talk about their stuff. You oh, know? for sure. I couldn't set it any better, Senorita. Well, I wrote all... No, I didn't. <laughs> I was like, completely improv I promise. Uh, yeah, no, totally sincere from the bottom of my heart. Love you guys. Love our listeners. Thank you guys so much for your support. If you have an opportunity and you'd like to support the show, go ahead, hit that subscribe button, leave a comment or a review on Apple Podcasts. As always... We love to hear from you guys. Um, shoot us a message on Instagram at, uh, at Forever on the Fly or Flying Sombrero. So hit us up. You know, don't be shy. Bye. Bye.